0: Right, you legends, welcome to another episode of A Need to Read. My name's Ed, and I'm the host. And today, I've got a conversation for you that I had with Assad Razouk. Now, Assad has recently written a book called Saving the Planet Without the Bullshit, and he's the host of the Angry Clean Energy Guy podcast. He also works in clean energy. He was a really interesting guy to chat to because his book is full of counterintuitive ways in which you can do positive things for the environment, see through greenwashing. And really just lift the lid on some of the issues that we are facing as a species and as a planet and as a whole ecosystem. So it's rather important. Now there is something else that I think is quite important and that is your mental health. I have been screaming for ages about therapy and people going to therapy if they've got ill mental health or if their brain's just not being kind to them. And this podcast is luckily sponsored by BetterHelp, so I can not only just encourage you to go to therapy, but get you some discount when you do go. Now, BetterHelp, even before you get your 10% off, are one of the most affordable providers of online therapy out there today. The access is within 48 hours, you'll be matched with a therapist to start your therapy journey. It is really unrivaled in that space. So if you're looking for online therapy, want to access it quickly and you want some money off head to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read and i wish you all the luck with your therapy journey it's one of the best things i've ever done now please enjoy the podcast with asad razook asad razook welcome to a need to read it's a pleasure to have you on very nice to be here ed because as you know i'm a fan <laughs> excellent um now, I'm a fan of yours actually as well, so that's a that's a mutual thing. Saving the Planet without the Bullshit was one of the first books that I'd read on the climate crisis, and it does exactly what it says on the tin. It takes some of the bullshit out of the the mess that is the climate and people trying to fix it in different ways, people trying to shove you down different alleyways to fix it and become this like. Ethical, perfectible person who would never do a thing to harm the planet. Now, counterintuitively, you've turned some of the assumptions that people make on their head in the book, but it would be a good idea for for people listening to get an understanding of, of who you are. Um, so, what, what is it that you do, Assad, that's sort of brought you to this time of your life
1: where you're writing a book about the climate? Well, So during the day, I run a renewable business, renewable energy business in Asia, full time, and that renewable energy business is about uh, deploying solar and wind assets around multiple countries in Asia. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I, I should say that Asia is very much at the forefront of suffering from climate change. So I don't think you can be in many of the countries that I go to without noticing that climate change has kind of a severe and immediate impact. Because I didn't really know anything about climate change, um, say 15 or, or 20, well, 17 years ago now. But I had to then confront what my eyes were uh, showing me, yeah. um, in, in many countries, you know, the Philippines or Thailand or Vietnam or Indonesia, or, yeah. you know, elsewhere, uh, it's everywhere to be seen. And so over the course of over a decade, I became a, an evening activist. If you can put it that way yeah. by effectively communicating as best as I could on Twitter, and LinkedIn, and subsequently on a podcast called The Angry Clean Energy Guy about the climate crisis on the one hand, but on the other hand, also things that we can do about it. And then three, calling out bullshit, basically, and greenwashing and abuse, uh, which is uh, rampant in that entire you know debate or conversation yeah. if you want to call it that way yeah and in your
0: travels within Asia with with your work what is one of the most like damaging things you've seen to a community there that is a direct result of of
1: climate change well look they're multiple all you have to do is in the Philippines where uh, my, you know, the business that I run is trying to develop and build and operate solar uh, mm. utility-scale uh, plants. Uh, the uh, typhoons that just hit the Philippines, you know, periodically, uh, have uh, uh, hit our sites. They've hit some of my colleagues' homes, villages, towns, cities and it's a recurring scene you know it's not a one off it's something that you see each year and then periodically you see how it's gotten either worse or more intense or the rhythm is different or the destruction is kind of more fundamental yeah. so that is uh, that is a recurring experience Th- thailand would be the same mm. And um, what was in the turning point of you? Because
0: you say it was about seventeen years ago that you became, or like just over a decade ago, you became this like evening evening activist. What was the turning point for you, with respect to the book? Uh, just in terms of getting involved in the
1: climate change. Well, well, that's pretty straightforward. I think the more you look into it, and the more you are informed the more angry you become yeah, and the more you want to take meaningful impactful action and then the more you're confused about what that may be yeah and so there was no there was no turning point there was a gradual process where your anger and frustration just increases you have to fight it back basically with optimism in order to find the balance and, and continue to be able to function and make a difference.
0: Yeah, definitely. Cause I think the, well, we, we spoke before and that was when I wasn't functioning, I think very well from, from trying to understand everything and, and getting to grips with it. Because when, when you first start looking into it, like it's, you're hard pressed to find an optimistic attitude when you first start, cause it's really, really overwhelming. So firstly. Fair play for doing something with your anger and and channeling it into this book, um, which we can move on to now. Who
1: essentially did you write the book for? I wrote it for my now Mm 26-year-old and that entire age group or for generation. Because what I observed also over the period of you know years, is that uh, my son, his friends, everybody he knows, actually deeply care about doing the right thing in terms of climate action. Mm. But what I also observed is that they then shoot off in multiple directions because the information that they're processing is very confusing. Mm. And so, as a result, I wanted a book that anyone could read without any scientific jargon to the maximum extent possible yeah from the age of you know from a young age basically um hopefully less than twenty six you know i I'm kind of hoping for sixteen or seventeen onwards yeah and then where they can go to to understand as they live through their life, you know, as, as they eat, drink, travel, live, breathe, invest, what is impactful and what isn't and how they can maybe guide their own climate action towards more productive paths yeah I know it's a tall order, but that's kind of the long-winded answer to your question.
0: yeah, well i th- I think it should be a success in that sense because there are so many different areas of people's lives where they might think they're doing the right thing when really it's not making that much of of an impact. And I can think of the so many different types of products now that are made out of bamboo. Um, or, like a bamboo toothpaste or something like or a toothbrush that makes people feel that like they 're doing something, but then let 's say for example they've they 've got a cat and in in your book, you talk about the amount of fish that is used in cat food over there
1: exceeds what the humans eat, right Yes, I think exactly y- you know, and that theme that you just put your finger on is across so many of what we, so much of what we do. Mm-hmm. plastic, plastic, for example, plastic straws or plastic cutlery. Mm-hmm. Your act and mine not to use a plastic straw is in effect meaningless. Yeah. And the reason it's meaningless is because plastic is being dumped on us free of charge with a nice name, i.e. plastic, or even better, if you start looking at your clothes, you know the names become even more exotic of what it is. When at the end of the day, it's a, it's a, a byproduct of oil and gas, which is effectively being dumped to continue to promote oil and gas. And yeah. these types of issues must be treated at source. Because your plastic straw and my plastic straw, and frankly, everybody else's plastic straw, even if they were gone, won't move the needle. No. And what would move the needle? Which, Ed, by the way, doesn't mean I use plastic straws. And I think this is like an important distinction, right? So where you can make a difference, you try, but you shouldn't then kind of go home and pat yourself on the back that you're done. Yes. Yeah. Um... Well, I think as you can see throughout the book, there is a number of impactful actions. One of them is, and I'm just going to come out and say it, I'm a big fan of peaceful climate protest.
0: Yeah. Well, don't say that in the UK anymore, because I think we're about to have uh, something passed uh, that's a new public order that someone's coming out with. But...
1: but we say that this is in jest. <laughs> but this is exactly the point. That new public order, right? You have to look at where it's coming from. You know, why is it there when actually people are just trying to take a peaceful protest, which, yes, sometimes uh, annoys drivers, for example, or uh, you know what have you but in effect it's fundamentally peaceful and is trying to raise awareness. Uh, In any case, I'm a big fan of peaceful protest. I'm a big fan of climate litigation because you can, at a stroke, change the entire strategy, decarbonization strategy of a country with one win in court, Mm. which is what happened in Germany last year. Okay. Um, What happened in Germany? Sorry. What happened in Germany was one lawsuit by youth NGOs arguing that the country's strategy for decarbonization was effectively putting the young of the future more at risk by not shifting enough burden to this society today, went through the courts and the judgment came that they were right. And so the government had to rip off their decarbonization strategy and then come out with this aggressive green plan, which two weeks before, three months before, two years before, they were pretending was impossible. And then, and then a year later, of course, we've had the Ukraine war since yeah. February 2022. And that actually shined a light on that action to show effectively the regret of not having done that 10 years ago. Because if they'd done that 10 years ago, they wouldn't have any Russian gas today to worry about losing. Yeah. And so that was all one single lawsuit. And there are other examples. And so, so the courts as an institution, it's a very good time to spend time in, either by supporting an NGO that's active in that space or in whatever small or big ways we can.
0: Okay. um, So, say, for, for, for people who maybe live in rural areas of of the uk or or parts of the world where protests joining them might take them five hours to get there they might the transport they might need to take like it's it's not feasible for them in someone's personal life you, you mentioned clothes um as as like a by product of oil and is that like the polyesters and stuff like that in clothes that, that comes from oil?
1: fashion fast fashion yeah. by and large, yes yeah all that all that cheap clothing this whole i this whole concept of constantly buying clothes is a very new concept Mm. and it's driven by plastic and it's driven by the fact that the plastic manufacturers do not pay for their pollution therefore they can sell things very cheap therefore you can have h&m and zara and everybody else with you know five six collections per year all of which has price points of, say, $10 or pounds or euros or less in some cases. Now, that entire culture is, I would argue, it's an oil and gas culture. It didn't exist 20 years ago. Nobody thought that they needed to have 50 sweaters, for example. And it doesn't really need to exist. I mean, I'm not answering your question about rural communities, but, but that's just my quick reaction to the point about textiles.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, so I think what I remember from the book is like it's a hundred billion pieces of clothing are produced like per year for a planet that only holds about seven eight billion of us. And it doesn't be add. It doesn't quite add up. So you're saying that the oil and gas industry sort of help this along, and it's because the companies like say H and M, Zara, to name two of them are not being charged for the impact
1: that their processes um, have. Okay, that's a big question. In reality, if you go back to the source of the problem, we have to pay for our pollution. Yeah. Right, you and I. We Mm -hmm. can't just go and throw trash on the street, can we? No. Right. Certainly not in Singapore. Certainly not in Singapore. (laughs) And there is a legal consequence if I did that. Yeah. Right. I'll get fined. And after three times, I probably go to jail. Right. Now, the reason I said it's a big question is because if you then look at the process of producing oil, gas, and coal from inception, that very simple principle that the polluter must pay is not applied. Mm -hmm. And so, because it's not applied, environmental costs are borne by society, they're socialized, yeah. but the profit isn't. The profit stays with them. And as a result, they can sell you products at lots of different price points, one of the lowest one of which is plastic, which is, for them, effectively trash, yeah. recycled Then you've got in the value chain the next players, you know, say petrochemical companies that are actually making it into plastic. They have no recycling obligations. They don't have to do anything about the product. They just pass it on. And then you've got the people that use it, whether it's bottling companies or uh, clothing companies or, and this is ubiquitous, by the way, in the sense that it's global and everybody does it. Yeah. All these companies. Also have no obligations to recycle or, or clean after themselves, and then it comes to us, the consumer, and here we are sorting trash in our multicolored trash bags. When in fact, because they haven't built the recycling infrastructure, because they were not forced to, actually, nothing happened to that by and large to that plastic-colored bag that you've put your plastic in, because only seven percent of plastic has ever been. Recycled. Oh, that's shocking, isn't it? Yeah. people but, put a lot of time into that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But, but I think, look, my point is not just being negative. My point is continue to recycle your plastic bottles because you never know. Maybe one day the recycling infrastructure will follow. But do not think that because you've done that, you've actually accomplished anything. The climate action meter so to speak yeah. H- hasn't really moved no no definitely not
0: and i suppose when it comes to things like plastic recycling is a good way to kind of redeem yourself for using a single use plastic in in people's minds so i i think even just the fact that 7% of all plastics that have been produced have been recycled of all that could have been recycled is a good enough reason for someone to rationally say maybe I'll cut out single-use plastics as much is as feasible. And I say as much as is feasible, but I guess probably even go further than that because there are people who are really bearing the the brunt of, of the climate crisis. And I guess single-use plastic being cut out is
1: not a big ask. Well, the emphasis there is on the word cut out. Mm-hmm. You should obviously cut out whatever you can because yeah. then, demand goes down, then maybe the product disappears. I was talking more about the stuff that you cannot cut out. It's very, very difficult for you to go into a supermarket, very thirsty. You don't have your your sustainable water bottle and not buy a plastic, something to drink. It's very difficult. And the question is then, you know, what do you do with that? Yeah. What.
0: Would that be an, another case of maybe where legislation would have to come in and like an NGO or law firm would have to maybe fight for even something simple like more water fountains? Like I've noticed the difference in, in the UK. We don't have many like water fountains around. I think Sadiq Khan's put maybe 100 in London over um, the last year or, or plans to. But when you go around Australia, they've got water um, as they're going around that. They're not perfect, but it can't be that hard to put a water fountain somewhere for people
1: to fill up their bottles, you know? Absolutely. There is basically an innumerable number of things, like a huge number of things that we can do about this. But resources are limited, Mm -hmm. and you're always running after the problem. Yes. Whereas, you're absolutely right, that legislation would have actually solved the problem. And just to circle back to climate protests, the entire point of climate protests or climate litigation is actually to prompt legislators to act, right? Uh, And so you can see how that actually uh, fits. Communication is very important. Right so we need to continue to communicate because we need to continue to increase awareness but we are being drowned by noise that's coming from people that are making 2.5 billion dollars a day for the last 50 years i.e. the fossil fuel industry who therefore yeah. obviously have a lot more money to spend on diluting that communication that you're making yeah which, you know which again brings you back to systemic ways that you can change the system as opposed to my plastic straw or your uh, sweater yeah
0: it's some um, it's very funny when you put something about you will have must have deal with this on a daily basis but climate inactivists just coming at you with a bunch of historical jargon that's like i suppose it makes sense in some context but not usually um when when talking about the climate it's really tough because there are people who buy into what the fossil fuels uh, companies are doing. Cause I, I think it's like 200 million or, or billion went into just um, like lobbying from BP, Shell, Exxon, like a group of, of six of them. And that like per, they yeah. had some per year, per year as well. Yeah. It's God, it's not good, is it? Um, but to, to move away from, from oil, our, our alternative is clean energy, and that's what the industry that people like yourself are in. What are the options there when it comes to clean energy?
1: Well, look, um, t- two points. I think the first one is um, the debate really isn't about the fuel Right. Mm. So, oil versus sun, or wind yeah. versus gas. That's not a pond. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the debate. The debate is about ultimately health. Yeah, uh, and this is kind of very important because at the end of the day, uh, my air is being polluted. Right, constantly. Yeah because of fumes let's call them that which all come from one type of fuel which we call fossil fuel right so that's yeah. what that's awesome called and at the same time at the same at the same time my lungs and my blood are also being polluted with uh microplastics which are now everywhere in the water you drink the air you breathe um in the uh unborn you, you know etc yeah um and that's also a byproduct of the same type of fuel. So it's not kind of something that we need to debate much. And I think no. when people, when people uh, hear that it's air pollution, they, it registers, right? Everybody wants to breathe clean air. Now, as to the alternatives, we've had the alternatives, we have the alternative, they're actually easier to pull through uh, than the um, uh, existing you, you know, strategies. So you know, broadly speaking, it's going to take 10 years to permit and build a new uh, natural gas plant or coal plant almost anywhere in the world. Yeah. It's going to take 20 years to permit and build a new nuclear power plant, but you could probably power the entire United Kingdom With offshore wind by 2030, and then you're done. I mean, basically, you know, I'm I'm slightly hyperboling, but but what I'm saying is inherently achievable. Yeah. Definitely power the United Kingdom with offshore wind by 2030 and get rid of all the rest, right? And so I think that the, 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 act of taking action that matters is critically important right you can see how uh there are very clear strategies to solve the problem and we have to just get there
0: yeah yeah and i guess that comes to people peaceful protesting like you said and then a couple of of the other things of of, around their lifestyle um just having a look at the, the chapters and it's reminded me of, of i read, I read the book, what, like two two months ago now. So it's not, it's not completely fresh from my um, memory, but there's, there's the part about carbon offsets. Um, I know we're jumping from, from clean energy. I think that was a, a firm, the options there, we just have to take it and, and, and how we get there is going to be up to us. But let's just say for someone who wants to ease their guilt a little bit and they travel a lot And they want to buy carbon offsets
1: um what's what's the issue with that well the issue is verification Mm. and authenticity you know when you buy an apple you know it's an apple basically right um when you buy a carbon offset actually you have no idea what you're buying yeah and it's 99 percent certain that you're not buying what you think you're buying and that in fact you're just buying hot air yeah and so plasters solutions that make us maybe feel better however very importantly allow the status quo to continue or even accelerate Mm -hmm are totally useless, completely useless. So I would rather you keep that money that you are going to spend on the carbon offset and buy an apple with it, to be honest, or put it in your bank account or save it or do something, than buying a carbon offset.
0: Yeah, or even direct transfers to people in countries less fortunate. I think even something like that might might be better. Because when you look around the world at the moment, it is so clear to see the impact that this is having on the world's poor um, looking and I'm not saying everyone on Nigeria is poor I know they're on the up I think in terms of their economy but a whole bunch of their countries underwater. Pakistan 30 million displaced from from flooding it does seem that the ext- extravagant in comparison lifestyle um is going to have to take a a hit at some point. What do you think of that?
1: Well, I'm not sure it's about the extravagant lifestyle, right? It's about the fact that we have all the resources we need, to effectively have our entire lifestyles and economies powered with clean renewables worldwide, yeah, but we're not doing it. And, and the issue with uh, 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 Pakistan, basically, I mean, it's a, it's a very good example. Pakistan, because you know, one third of the country was flooded because of an extreme weather event, yeah which isn't supposed to happen, right? So that, that's pretty clear. But if you then think about um, what is it that the Pakistanis could have done about it, I mean, the answer is nothing. Yeah. Because, because they, hardly, they hardly affected the climate in terms of wh- what they do. Yeah. And um, they also don't have the money to deal with the consequences. Mm. And so, uh, look, to me, it all points back to the same place. We have to treat the root causes of the problem. We have to stop being distracted. We have to call out bullshit when we see it and greenwashing. And we have to make sure that the right levers effectively are being tackled to solve the problem and so the entire book if you will is about you know just showing or, or rather arguing you know what what i think the facts indicate are yeah. the levers that we should be focused on because we can win this fight and that's you know critically important there's no there's no question that we can win this fight However, there needs to be many of us that are asking uh, for that win, and that are making our voices heard, which is definitely not the case at the moment.
0: No, no, it's definitely not. And I, th- I think people are underinformed, which is where you step in, <laughs> uh, underempowered, and I think that's just a general sense of of power is being taken away from people at the moment. People feel disempowered, I think, in in a general sense. Like, uh, what's the point? Getting quite nihilistic with it. Um, yeah, so it, it all signs point to protesting and calling out bullshit in a peaceful way.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting you bring up this point because, in fact, it, there are no tools really, there's not many tools that are available to deal with that empowering need. No. So it's like I'm sitting in my rural village to take an example you gave. Exactly what is it that I can do and then trace to have made a difference? Yeah. And that's another side of this conversation because we also need to develop these impactful tools that could mobilize 100 million people or 200 million people. And, you know, I'm certainly trying. I have one of these initiatives that is, that is kind of coming. There are others who are trying, but that is, a very difficult, that is a very difficult task.
0: Yeah, I think group cohesion is always going to be difficult, no matter what the crisis we're facing. It could be a meteor heading towards Earth, and someone will tell you it's not. Like there's always going to be the contrarian people who get in the way, and there will be the people who just don't quite think it's serious enough it's um It's a real task for humanity, and if I'm honest, I think your your book has done well in adding some clarity in in how people might be able to move through this period so it's definitely definitely a good job um I think that's quite a good natural place to to round off the conversation because aside not only do have you written the book but you're also quite active um in the evenings as an activist of course on online so where where could people find you and follow you
1: well thank you ed that's all very kind i i've got a podcast called the angry clean energy guy which is 20 25 minutes per episode typically on one topic they can find me on twitter by just looking for my name Asad Razouk, they can find me on LinkedIn as well they can find me on uh, Facebook
0: Well thank you very much for listening to that episode I hope you enjoyed it I really enjoyed chatting to Asad so if you want to get his book uh, you know where it's available you can get your books wherever you want to get your books I do recommend it I think as well if you do know young people who definitely don't want to read it is pretty accessible so get it into them, help them understand what's going on with the planet, because we need all the help we can get, Uh, I don't know what's coming up next week, I am still away, so I'm recording this in the past, Um, but I'm sure I'll have something there for you, so please do come back, love you, bye.